0: Good morning again to you. Please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 23. Genesis 23. This series is called I Will, the faithfulness of God and the life of Abraham. And we have after this Sunday, just two more weeks, we'll be going through uh, Genesis 25. And then when in the narrative Abraham passes away, we're going to take a break in Genesis and uh, go to the Gospel of John. So in about three, four weeks' time, we'll be in the Gospel of John. We'll go through chapters 5 through 12. The first four chapters of John were the introduction of Christ, and we called that Behold the Lamb, where John the Baptist, remember, saw Christ come and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And The next several chapters in the Gospel of John are going to be um, focusing in on the ministry of Christ. And he will always be worthy of honor and glory and praise. We should honor the son and yet we'll find over and over through those chapters that he's not And so we'll be looking through those uh, parts of the gospel of john here in the next uh, couple months But today genesis 23 And before we get going we need to start today with a quick poll, okay How many of you would say you dread? Negotiating the price of a car or a house or even stuff at a garage sale. How many of you dread negotiation? How many of you dread raising your hand at church? Okay. (laughs) Now, how many of you would say you enjoy negotiation for those kinds of purposes? Almost like it's a sport for you. Okay, now you know whose garage sale's not to go to for each other, right? Okay, it's one of those things where you either like it or you hate it, right? Negotiation. We're gonna see that today. We're gonna see an ancient attempt at negotiation. And that, that, uh, that part may or may not be interesting to you in this passage today. But Abraham, he's certainly not going to be interested in the fight of it. He's not going to be. But he is going to purchase some land. And the significance of that purchase and the purpose and motivation behind that purchase are going to be of particular interest to us today. As we then consider our own interests, our own desires, the reason we value what we value, and how that impacts our decisions, our actions, every day. Have you ever heard the saying, a person was so heavenly-minded that they were of no earthly good? Have you heard that before? What does that even mean? Is that an accurate statement? Who determines the values of earth in that statement to decide whether it's good or not? And what does it mean to be heavenly-minded? Would that actually hurt or help in our sojourning through this temporary life on this temporary earth? So let's look into God's word today as we seek to answer all of these questions. Genesis 23, starting in verse 1. Sarah Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So we know that they've left Beersheba, right? They were living in the last chapter right outside of the land of the Philistines. Then they've moved in towards where Hebron is. And this process of weeping for her, to mourn for her, it would have been traditional practice of going to the dead body, spending time weeping and mourning prior to removing the body from its location, from its deathbed, if you will, and then preparing for burial, This was the cultural custom, what Abraham was doing. Not to say that Abraham was not weeping sincerely, that he didn't hurt for her loss. He surely was. But we're also being told here in this passage today that Sarah, and she hasn't always been, right? Sarah was being treated well, uh, with honor and respect in her death. Verse 3. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner. I will see these words later. A stranger and an exile among you. And then he says, give me property. And this this was the polite way to begin the process of purchasing land. It may not sound like that, but it was polite. It sounds quite forward, doesn't it? Give me property. But... It was polite. It was more like saying, may I please have some land? Okay? Uh, that sounds nicer to our ears. And it actually may not be very different from what you would say today. Uh, when we go to the restaurant, and you say, I'd like a nice tea. We know that we're not asking for free tea, right? We're going to pay for that when we're done eating dinner, aren't we? It's just what you would say. And so Abraham says, give me property among you, those current holders of the land in the region, the Hittites, for... A burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered, Abraham, hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. The Hittites were giving Abraham the respect that they would to any tribal or regional leader. One whom they believed was divinely blessed. It doesn't mean they believed in his God necessarily or followed his God, surely not. But they affirmed that he was divinely blessed. Divinely blessed. And he was, wasn't he? And unbeknownst to them, they would be blessed if they blessed him. That was the promise of God. Abraham referred to himself here as a sojourner and an exile. And the Hittites paid him respect as a divinely blessed leader. Good business move? Or just sincere respect? We don't know. But they said it, okay? So continuing on to verse 6. In verse 6, it says, bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. This is what the Hittites are saying to Abraham. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Now, on one hand, that would be a great showing of respect. They were willing to allow Abraham to choose for himself whichever gravesite he desired the most. They were not going to limit his options. But it also could have been a ploy. If they were to offer Abraham the tomb as a gift without ownership of the land, uh, then they could also then later take it away. It's not his, it's ours. Uh, Maybe after Abraham's death, they could say that. And so they can respect him and be kind to him, to his face, and then later on, he doesn't take anything from them. And the wealth and the prominence of Abraham, we might understand that they would have some concern about him coming to town and actually owning some land. Does that make sense? So they're trying to figure this out here themselves. They're trying to figure this out themselves. Either way, Abraham needed to pick a plot of land now so they can get going with these negotiations. Verse 7. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. This is just courtesy and proper business here. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, okay, so since we've come this far, now the negotiations, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. So Abraham came to the market knowing the product he wanted to purchase. So good move, Abraham, right? And he says he's willing to buy it. Not taking it for free, he wants to buy it. And he says in this verse, for the full price. Abraham's saying, I'm not trying to get a deal here. I'm not trying to take advantage of you. My desire is to be fair. It says, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a bearing place. We're going to see this idea of in your presence quite a bit. But in your presence, so that the deal would be official, uh, having been certified, maybe even notarized like we would have today, by those who were present. Now, verse 10, Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. So it just so happened, hey, great, Ephron's already there. They don't have to go track him down, right? And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate, at the gate of his city, Uh, Do you notice now the repetition of the fact that there were multiple witnesses there that day? The gate would have been where all the officials were. They were all there. They're at the gate. Uh, For some reason, we're supposed to be aware of the fact that this deal was legitimate. Hmm. So here is Ephron's response in verse 11. He says, no, my Lord, hear me. And what does he say? I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And then what did Abraham do again? He bowed down. So basically, whenever they pretended to offer Abraham free stuff, (laughs) he would bow down to say, thanks, but no thanks. And so Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And then we might think, and then walked away with the deed to a free plot of land, right? Well, they offered it to him. But no, Uh, Ephron was supposed to say that. He was supposed to be uh, this kind and generous with Abraham. He was being culturally appropriate. Again, paying respects to the prominence of Abraham in the region. Ephron was following the code of conduct, if you will. And now, Abraham is supposed to respond in kind. Ephron's words here, then, were not intended, not genuinely intended to freely give Abraham the land. Ephron's actually communicating his willingness to sell. Does that make sense? So in their way of negotiating, Ephron's offer to give him the land is really him saying, Sure, I'll sell it to you. Okay? It's kind of weird, isn't it? But it is what it is. Also, though, notice that Abraham only asked if he could buy a little sliver of land for burial. Okay, His desire was not to begin a conquest of the land through real estate purchases. He's just honoring his wife. But Ephron now is showing his willingness to sell the whole field. So we're back at verse 13. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. This is Abraham speaking. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. He keeps saying that I may bury my dead there, doesn't he? He wants them to know that's all he intends to do with this land. I'm not here to take over. I'm not here to fight. I'm not here to start something. I just want to bury my dad. So with that, though, the field is agreed to. Okay, we've gotten that far now. And now we've got to deal with the price. The price is next. Verse 14, Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, he keeps being so nice, doesn't he? My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver... And shekels back then were not individual coins. It was just a system of measuring weight. So that would have been about 10 pounds of silver. So people who know silver, do your math, okay? But 400 shekels of silver, that's what he says. He says, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Again, this is polite negotiation. Ephron might be saying, hey, hey, what's 400 shekels between you and I? Just... Just bury your dead. Don't even worry about it. Don't even worry about it. Take the land. It's yours. But what he's really saying is, I'll sell you the land for 400 shekels of silver. And you'd better take this offer because it's a great deal. Does that make sense? He's minimizing the amount of money. What's 400 shekels between you and me? So what Abraham hears correctly is, this is my low offer. (laughs) This is a great deal, you better take it. Okay, I've got children to feed. Come on, 400 shekels, what's the deal? And so that's what he hears. Whether it was a great deal or not, who knows? It'd be hard to tell. You'd have to know the currency of the time. You'd have to know the value of land there at the time. You'd have to know how much land was even being purchased. So I think anything like that is just speculation. Was he getting a good deal or not? Who knows? And it appears that he doesn't really care whether he's getting a good deal or not. Because verse 16 says, Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. So there was no back and forth at all, was there? Named the price, he weighed it out. And again, we have this seemingly unnecessary statement here denoting that the purchase price was agreed to, the money counted out and weighed publicly, and the transaction completed according to the laws, according to the customs. Of the day and the region. This was, no question, a legitimate purchase of land. Abraham, for the first time, owns a piece of the promised land. This is a first. So, verse 17 the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham. Contractually made over to him as a possession. In the presence, again it says, in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife. He did with the land what he had said he was going to do. He buried his wife. In the cave of the field of Machpelah east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property, it says it again, for a burying place by the Hittites. Now, have you ever wondered why Abraham chose to bury Sarah here at Machpelah? And chose that location, of course, too, for his own burial. He would be buried there, along with Isaac and Rebekah. And the third generation, Jacob and Leah, were buried there. But why there? Why Why at Hebron? Ur was home, right? He was Abram from Ur of the Chaldees. Well, that would seem like a logical place to go get buried, Back, back in the hometown, and Sarah was from there too. We are thinking about Sarah's burial, not just Abram's. But that's not where they were buried. Ur was not his home. What well, about Haran? Haran was where all the family was, right? If you're going to have family come and visit your grave, you'd want to be where they are. And so Haran would have made sense that way. But they didn't choose Haran. Abraham purchased this land for burial in the midst of the Hittites, but also right in the middle of the promised land. By faith, by faith, Ur was no longer his home. Haran was no longer their home. Abraham was a stranger and an exile in this land, in the promised land, but God had made that promise. This was going to be their home. And if not just his, his promised descendants. This was going to be their home. And so that's where they would be buried. Abraham chose this location by faith. That's what this is about. It's by faith. It didn't matter what it cost. God promised to bless him. It didn't matter that family wasn't around to visit. There would be family to come a family to share the site with. God had promised it. Abraham was looking forward in faith, believing in the promises of God and calling a place that was not yet his home, home. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, we're going to start reading there in verse 8. The writer of Hebrews gives us more insight into what was happening here with Abram, with Abraham and with Sarah and their faith that guided them. So Hebrews 11, verse 8, says this By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And we say, well, why? How did he do that? Why would they bury their dead in this land? Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And you can't find that city on a map. And it's not yet in the history books. Abraham was thinking beyond the Exodus. He wasn't just thinking about his son or his son's son. He was thinking beyond Egypt. He was thinking beyond the Exodus, beyond Joshua and Judges, beyond David and the kings, even beyond the Babylonian conquest and their, the Israelites return from their exile. He was thinking beyond the coming of Christ beyond Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He was thinking beyond the age of the church, beyond 2019, even beyond 2020. He was thinking beyond that. Abraham was looking forward to the days when everything will be made new by God himself. By God himself. And there will be no election for that throne. Uh, these are the same times that you and I are to look forward to when God makes everything new, when he rules and reigns. Verse 11 says in Hebrews 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. We think, well, she might have laughed at first, right? But there was more to it than that after that one day. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, and that's where Abraham says, hey, wait a minute, him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These, and we would specifically be thinking of Abraham and Sarah, these all died In faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We saw that happen today, didn't we? For people who speak thus, verse 14 says, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, Ur or Haran, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. A better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed. This this part is amazing. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their god. For he has prepared for them a city. So we have to ask ourselves now, as we think about all of this, whose land is my land? Who who is my king? Remember that saying, being so heavenly-minded that we're of no earthly good? Well, what good is earthly good if that's all the good there is? Does that make sense? What good is earthly good if that's all the good there is? If Abraham wasn't as concerned with the land at Hebron as he was eagerly concerned with the glorious kingdom of God, then what value does my property or do my possessions on this earth hold? And why do I hold them? Is it for my pleasure or for his? Is it for my earthly pleasure or for his eternal glory? Maybe the idea of being too heavenly-minded for any earthly good should be rethought. If I'm to be of any good on this earth, I'd better be heavenly-minded. If I'm to be of any eternal good on this earth, I must be heavenly-minded. Being heavenly-minded does not just mean having your head in the clouds, which is what that's really saying, right? That you just can't even think about anything because your heads are always, your head is always in the clouds. Well, no, that's not it at all. That's not being heavenly-minded. Titus two eleven through fourteen says this: For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age on this earth how verse 13 by waiting for our blessed hope that's how the appearing of the glory of our great god and savior jesus christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works God the Son took on flesh and came down to this cursed world. What is earthly good anyways? He lived a sinless life. He was and is good. And he died in our place because we are not good. We are sinners. He died in our place to redeem us. He purchased us in his death, in his sacrifice. And in his death, we have forgiveness. We've been justified, declared to be not guilty, declared to be righteous, set apart to God. That's what we've been given. And we now have a purpose. We have a purpose that is so huge in the minds of so many people and especially young people as we are growing up and we think, boy, what am I going to be? What is my purpose in life? Christian, you have a purpose. It's been given to you graciously by God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have a purpose. We are His possession. And we are to be zealous for good works when we remember who we are. When we remember whose we are. When we are heavenly-minded, we will be able to bring some good to this earth. We will see ourselves as stewards, stewards, and see our possessions, our talents, and our responsibilities on this earth as God-given tools for God's glory. We will see our jobs as opportunities to work hard and with excellence, as Colossians 3 says, working heartily as unto the Lord— and think about that the next time we have a problem with our boss, right? The Bible says we have to treat them like as if they were Jesus. They we say, oh, my boss is not Jesus. Well, no, neither am I and neither are you. The Bible doesn't tell us your boss is Jesus. The Bible tells us to treat our bosses like they were and to work hard as if they were uh, we'll see our coworkers as human beings who need Jesus and need to see him through our work ethic through our words when we have the opportunity we'll see our schools uh, classmates students if you're a teacher as souls who need a savior we'll see our neighbors we ask who is my neighbor we'll see our neighbors as human beings who were made in the image of god and therefore deserving of respect and kindness and so even if we disagree, we do so with kindness, giving an answer for the hope that is in us with gentleness and respect, First Peter. Listen, I'm not saying that Christians should purposefully be poor or that we should be cowards, that we should be passive, that we should ignore sin and its consequences. What I am saying is that Christians should be the best employees and the best employers, that Christians should be the, te- the best teachers and the best students, that Christians should be the best bankers, the best real estate agents, the best accountants, that Christians should be the best contractors, the best tradesmen, that Christians should be the bravest soldiers and policemen and firemen, that Christians should be the best dads and moms and uncles and aunts and grandparents and everything else in there. Why? Why? Because the grace of God has appeared. Jesus Christ is our Savior. We are being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So we don't cut corners. We don't lie to or use or, or hurt others to climb to the top or to feel better about ourselves. We don't do that. We don't purposefully make or sell inferior products. We don't treat our employees or bosses or customers like dirt. We don't cheat on tests. We don't give up on our students. We don't give in to corruption or greed. We don't turn a blind eye to the hurting. We don't accept injustice. We don't treat our children like nothing more than a tax exemption or try to live vicariously through them. We don't look down on our neighbors if their grass isn't as green as ours. Earthly ends do not justify the means to us. They just don't, and don't lose don't lose sight of the gospel in that list. Don't lose sight of the gospel in that list. I say we don't do this, we don't do that, we don't do this, we don't do that. Well, you know what? We all have, haven't we? We've all done those things, but by the grace of God, we've been washed. We've been set apart. We pursue growth. We can encourage each other in these things and grow in these things. Why? Because we're Christians. We are Christ followers who are now busy pursuing, as the passage said, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. How? Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So then guess what? When when your bosses, your coworkers, your customers, your suppliers, your teachers, your students, your classmates, your neighbors, even your family ask you, why are you like that? What's your deal? You're a hard worker. And you've been successful, or you've been persecuted because you didn't do those things. And you're not a jerk about it. What's up with that? You don't step on people to get yours. You're actually nice to people and you treat them honestly. Why are you like that? Why do you do that? How do you do that? And you could give them the same answer Abraham would for why he properly, legally bought that land for Sarah's gravesite. Following the laws and customs of the day, showing respect. For those Hittites, even when maybe they weren't showing him honest and sincere respect, we'd have the same answer. We desire a better country. We desire a better country, a heavenly one, by faith. We have been forgiven and purchased by the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we are now eagerly waiting his appearing. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether at home or away, therefore we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. And with that, you point them to the same hope, our only hope, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that we could be together today to be in your word. We thank you for um, this testimony of Abraham. Uh, Lord, more than that, we thank you for the testimony of your faith in his life. The gracious work that you did in his heart as we've been able to see Uh, as we go through these passages, his progressive sanctification. And Lord, we know through that that you are faithful, that you are going to do what you've promised to do. God, we thank you that you've made that promise to us, that you are going to complete the work that you started in us, and that you're going to use all things to work together for our good to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that we would walk by faith, that it would affect our relationships with people, that it would impact our business agreements and business transactions, our relationships with our coworkers and our bosses and those who work for us, that it would impact in a way that brings you honor and glory and praise the relationships that our young people have in their schools, with their teachers, with students, with younger and older students. God, that it would impact the way that we talk and spend time with our neighbors on our streets, in our blocks, um, in the restaurants, in the stores. God, may we be a people that bring honor and glory to your name by living in a way that's pleasing to you. Help us to continue to grow in this. And Lord, through that, may we be salt and light here and faithfully use the testimony that you're giving to us by your grace and your faithfulness to point people to Jesus Christ for your honor and your glory we pray these things amen